Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampiliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophina and Trifosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julius, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. 
Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the great foundation of the gospel. And we pray as we engage with your word uh, tonight that we would be uh, firmer in it, uh, have those gospel foundations very clear and uh, all the more solid, uh, both in our individual lives and in our life as a church family, we pray for your praise and glory. Amen. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, I congratulate my brother Peter for his reading. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, You might like to turn back to that reading. You might not think it's worthwhile. Uh, I hope you do. Uh, Romans chapter 16, page 1142. And you might also like to dig out a handout um, to see what we're going to say. Tonight we come to the end of our journey through the book of Romans. It's a journey that began way back on the 8th of September. Some of you will have been here for that. At times we've had to go a little bit fast. Romans chapters 9 to 11 in one evening was a bit reckless. I think we broke the Roman speed limit that day. But I still reckon we've learned some things and been challenged and encouraged loads as we've engaged with what we discovered was the momentous news of the gospel in Romans. Momentous news that has had, uh, as uh, Gareth has already said, uh, challenging implications for us, life-changing lessons. Romans has been immense. So a quick look at chapter 16, and you might be tempted to think it's something of an anticlimax. This breathtaking letter proclaiming astonishing truths ends like a telephone directory with a list of people we don't know and most of whose names we, apart from Peter, can barely pronounce. But I want to suggest, far from it being an anticlimax and running the risk of sounding like a real geek, I think we'll discover this evening that Romans chapter 16 is a thrilling way to end the letter. I know that sounds geekish, but by the end, you're all going to be geeks with me. Because here in this chapter, in these people listed here, remember this is a letter to real people, in these real people listed here, we see something of what the gospel produces when it comes with power. Here we see the gospel worked out in real lives. And first we see, if you're following along on the handout, a remarkably united community. You see, read through this list of names in the first 16 verses and we discover that the church in Rome was a community that was diverse in race and rank and gender. Here in the church in Rome, converted Jews and converted Gentiles lived together. So in verse 3, we meet Priscilla and Aquila. If you want to write this down, Acts chapter 18 verse 2 tells us that they were Jewish converts to Christ. And in verses, uh, verse 7, Paul greets Andronicus and Junius, who he describes as my relatives, just as he does Herodian in verse 11. And the word there for relatives would be better translated king's folk. They were fellow Jews with Paul, Jews who were converted to Christ. So in the church in Rome, there were converted Jews. And as we read on, we see there were converted Gentiles. In verse 15, we meet Olympus. Now look, you don't get much more Greek than that. My dad's name was William Williams. I can tell you he was born in Wales, in Blynavon, in the valleys. 
But you don't need to know his birthplace to know that he has Welsh roots. Who but the Welsh would give anyone such a ridiculous name? William Williams. That's about as Welsh as they come, along with Thomas Thomas and Morgan Morgan. Well, Olympus was about as Greek as you could get. And I could go through other names in the list and and work out their origin, and so can you. The point is this. The gospel brought Jew and Gentile together. Gentiles, of course, was just anybody who wasn't a Jew. Jews and everyone else brought together. People who wouldn't normally hang out together. People who had nothing in common. People who would avoid each other are united in the gospel. This marriage between Jew and Gentile is a mighty fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that the whole of Romans is about. And of course, it's why unity is so important in the church. It's why, have you noticed it, unity has been such a big theme in the last chapters of Romans. Because in a supernatural way, the gospel brings together people who naturally wouldn't have been seen dead together. It's not just a racial divide that the gospel crosses. The gospel spans... The generation gap. Notice the tenderness of Paul's words in verse 13 where he speaks of dear old Rufus's mum. She's been a mother to me, he says. He's been mothered by Rufus and he loves it. It's one of the things I I love about Sunday evening at Christ Church Forward, how we have so many of different ages. We have the youth here and the students here. And we have young adults, the middle-aged, the retired, all together in the unity of the gospel. As we read on, we can see that the gospel even breaks through social barriers. I'm told that inscriptions that were found at the same time as Romans is written tell us that names like verse 8, Ampliatus, verse 9, Urbanus, verse 14, Hermes, verse 15, Philologus and Julia, these were names commonly given to slaves. And then sitting alongside them are verse 10, Aristobulus, who is believed to be the grandson of King Herod the Great. And in verse 11, there's Narcissus, who many think was the well-known rich and powerful man who exercised great influence on Claudius. Now, of course, we can't be sure on these things. I'm not going to die for these thoughts. We can't be sure of them because their social standing is not given to us. But they're not given to us quite deliberately. Because in the, social, in the gospel, my social status counts for nothing. The gospel gives me a far more important status. In the gospel, I am a child of the king and brother of Jesus, the supreme lord of the universe. The gospel puts us all on the same standing. That's where our unity comes from. The gospel unites people from the businessman's lounge and the working man's club. Those who travel first class and those who always go economy. The gospel's for everyone. See here, the racial divide, gone. The class divide, gone. The gender divide is gone as well. In this list, we see men and women have an equally valued place in the church of Jesus Christ. So there's Mary in verse 6 being mentioned immediately after verse 5 of Penitus. Indeed, nine of the 26 people mentioned here are women. In verse 12, we possibly meet, in verse 12, twin sisters. Some people suggest Tryphena and Tryphona were twin sisters. In verse 15, there's Julia. Well, the point is we meet men and women and we know that some are married. In verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila. And in verse 7, Andronicus and Junius. And so we can presume that others were single. It's wonderful, isn't it? What we see in this list is exactly what Paul wrote in another of his letters in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and I've put it on the handout. 
that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that is exactly what we should expect to see when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. It means that when the gospel impacts a society, the church it produces ought to be as cosmopolitan as the society that it's in. And again, it means the gospel really is for everyone, whatever their race, whatever their rank, whether they're male or female. I need to be reminded of that. I don't know whether you do as well, because I sometimes look at people and think, oh, they're not the type. They wouldn't be interested in Jesus Christ. They've got everything they need, I think. This list in Romans 16 tells me there isn't a a type. The gospel's for everyone. And therefore, God's church is for everyone. Over the years, a few people have said to me, Fullwood's not for me. And when I ask them why it's not for them, they say something like, well, the people of Fullwood Church are not my kind of people. I try to dig around and try and find out what sort of kind of people they think we are. But I don't think there is a type here. And to be fair to us, I'm not going to defend us if there is a problem, but we can only reflect the area we live in. So in that sense, I suppose there's a type. But what we can do is let's make sure we don't give the impression of there being a Christchurch forward type. Let's work hard. I think you do. But let's carry on working hard at showing everyone who walks in that they're welcome. Let me just encourage, and loads of you do this, but those of you perhaps who've never gone through your mind to this, let me encourage you as you arrive on a Sunday, you're thinking, ah, I'm doing ministry today as well. Not just the guys at the front and the girls at the front. I'm doing ministry as well today. I'm going to welcome anybody who's new. Or anybody I don't know, I'm going to welcome them. You could do that. That would be a great way of getting rid of this idea of there being a type. Just welcome people. Go and say hello to them. And not just people that look like you. Speak to people who are older than you and younger than you. People who are different to you. Let's be sure that here in Christchurch Forward, the gospel produces a remarkably united community. Because that's what it does. Secondly, uh, the gospel produces a hard-working church. Again, in verses 1 to 16, we see this. As Paul greets these people, you can't miss how often he commends them for the work they're doing. He starts with Phoebe. Look at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. A servant, you see, a, a worker, a slave. I ask that you receive her in the Lord in a way that's worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been a great help to many people including me. She's been a great help as Phoebe. Phoebe was a worker. As were Priscilla and Aquila, verse three. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They were amazing, Priscilla and Aquila. Did you notice it when it was read, verse four? They risked their lives for Paul. And verse 4, not only Paul, but all the Gentile churches are grateful to them. They were key players in Paul's mission to the Gentiles. In verse 17, Paul greets Andronicus and Junius. And what an accolade they receive. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who've been in prison with me. Oh, that wasn't because they, you know, broken the speed limit. They've been in prison. You know, whenever Paul went in prison, it's because of the gospel. And what do we read of them? They are outstanding among the apostles 
and they were in Christ before I was. Outstanding among the apostles. Which incidentally doesn't mean that they were apostles, but rather that they were well known by the apostles as outstanding workers. And then in verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa are women, do you see it, who worked hard. And then special commendation, it goes in verse 6 to Mary and verse 12 to Persis. They worked very hard. You see the pattern, the gospel produces hard-working people. Now look, we mustn't get confused here. The gospel gets people working, but real gospel people are not working hard to get into God's good books. We've seen that very clearly in this letter. Romans is all about God's offer to rescue people by grace through faith alone. Remember chapter four, way back, we did it ages ago. The whole chapter was devoted to proving that salvation has absolutely nothing to do with our work. It's not our good work, our hard work that saves us. We just put our trust in Christ, faith in Christ. So these people are not working hard to get into God's good books. But once I'm saved, once I have really grasped the wonder of the gospel, when I've been confronted with how sinful I am and then seen how gracious God is to step in and save me by the Lord Jesus dying on the cross, no less, such extravagant love, When I know that and I've experienced that kind of forgiveness, that grace, well then my heart is so full of love for the Lord Jesus that I want to serve and work for him to tell others about him. That's how the work goes. That's the key to understanding this hard work from all these people in chapter 16. You'll see, uh, just for example, verse 12, Greek Tryphena and Tryphosa, who women who work hard in the Lord. It's not just they're in the Lord, they work hard in the Lord, you see. This hard work that he keeps talking about is the work that fits into the Lord's agenda, the agenda that we've seen throughout the book of Romans, namely that people from all nations would come to know the momentous news of Jesus Christ. That's what these people were working hard for. And this fits into the reason, of course, behind Paul writing the letter. Remember, Paul was going to Spain to plant churches there. We saw it last week, chapter 15, verse 24. And on the way to Spain, he's going to pop into Rome. So the church in Rome will assist him in his church planting work in Spain. And we saw that that assistance work means them giving money and some of them going to Spain with him. So what Paul is doing here in chapter 16 is he's saying, we've already, we, we've already have, we already have some wonderful, great gospel partnerships Many of you are working really hard in the gospel. Now let's kind of further that hard gospel work and gospel partnership with some of you coming to Spain and working hard with me there. The big point is this, the gospel generates gospel work and gospel workers. A friend of mine, Tom, when he was studying this passage said, I do wonder what Paul would write about me. Greet Tom, he turns up. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? Certainly, as I've looked at this passage, I've been very excited to think about the church family here at Fullwood and what Paul would write to us. Greet Laura. She worked hard in talking to her housemates about the gospel. Greet Simon. He's working very hard with the youth. Greet Barbara and Tom. They're great encouragers and work very hard in many different ways throughout the church family. 
Greet Joe. She works hard in witnessing at work. Greet the small group that meets in Andy and ML's house. They've worked hard to plan a really imaginative event for Passion for Life. Greet Margaret. She works hard in the discipline of prayer. I could go on. And it didn't take me long to think of those examples and I could add many more people to that list because there are so many people who are working hard in the Lord. The gospel does that. It's wonderful, isn't it? And of course, this hard work in the gospel is completely linked to the unity that this church enjoyed. Because have you noticed how being a hard gospel worker brings unity and real genuine friendship? My best friendships are with people I've worked alongside with in the gospel down through the years. So if you feel a bit on the edge of the church family, not quite part of what's going on here, please talk to me, talk to Gareth, talk to someone that you know about getting involved with others in gospel ministry. And as you do that, you know, you will no longer feel as if you're on the edge. For all sorts of reasons, you'll get to know other people and, in, and you'll get to love those other people and they'll love you and you'll find yourself united with them in gospel ministry and you won't sort of think, oh, I'm not really part of things. You will feel fully part of things. Now, before we leave this point of hard work, as I've pointed out these characters, again, I'm sure you've noticed, I'm sure you've noticed that there are many women mentioned here, many women Many women doing gospel ministry, just as I could make a long list of women in this church family who are doing gospel ministry. None of these women in Rome are in overall leadership, but here and through the whole New Testament, men and women work hard together in their respective complementary roles serving the mission of the church. The gospel then produces a remarkably united community of hard-working gospel workers. And then thirdly, And uh, over the page, we see the gospel produces a discerning church. Verses 17 to 20. Verse 17, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them. That verse does rather jar there. Did you feel it when Peter was reading it? Paul has been greeting one person after another. Greet so-and-so, greet such-and-such, greet this person, greet that couple, greet so-and-so, greet something. And then he says, verse 17, I urge you, watch out for them. Keep away from them. Rome was full of gospel friends, but it also had its share of gospel enemies too. And we mustn't be naive about that. The greatest danger the church faces is not persecution from unbelievers God's in God's grace persecution often makes the church stronger often scatters the church in the best sense to get them out so that more and more people become Christians that's what persecution often does now the greatest danger a church faces is false teaching inside the church see to destroy a church you must attack the power that made it in the first place And we know where the power comes from because Paul told us way back in chapter one. This is the only cross-reference I'm going to turn you to. So uh, keep uh, something in chapter 16 and just come with me back to chapter one and verse 16, just so you see it, page uh, 1128. Where's the power? Romans chapter one, verse 16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone. The gospel is the power that brings the church together in glorious unity. Do you see it there, chapter 1, verse 16? Jew and Gentile. So vandalise the gospel and the power that unites the church and indeed the power that motivates Christians to work, that power evaporates. That's exactly what he's writing about here. Chapter 16, verse 17, back to chapter 16. What's he been writing about? Unity, breaking down all the divisions, hard workers motivated by the gospel. How do you spoil it? Get rid of the power of the gospel. Change the gospel. Bring in another gospel. Now that's what we see in verse 17. Please look carefully to see what the issue is here. I'm going to spell it out completely. We are to keep away from those who, verse 17, teach things that are contrary to that which the Romans have heard. What have the Romans heard? Well, they've just heard the book of Romans. So we must not welcome those who teach anything that denies the gospel as it is laid out in here. People will say, I believe the gospel. What gospel do you believe? Is it the gospel as laid out in here? It is teaching that is contrary to the teaching of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles. In other words, teaching and teachers that are teaching things contrary to the scriptures that we must not welcome. More than that, we must keep away from and must not allow into this church family. Now, please don't mishear this. This doesn't mean they are not welcome among us. It's just that they must not be given a platform for teaching. You see, pervert biblical teaching and the church will divide and fragment. And look, I often hear people from within the wider church suggest that for the church to be united or for the church to grow, we must relax our definition of the gospel. Right now, there is an almighty battle going on in the Church of England about what we should teach over human sexuality. There is huge pressure for us not to uphold the clear biblical teaching on the definition of marriage. And when churches like Forward refuse to budge on the Bible's teaching, we are accused of causing division. Be very clear from verse 17, that is, those who teach things that are contrary to the teaching of the Bible that cause division, they wreck the church not those who continue to stand firm on the Bible. And beware, because these false teachers don't look like the vicious vandals that they are. Verse 18, such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetite. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Smooth talk and flattery, it's what Jesus said. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And so he says, verse 19, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And then be encouraged, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, Satan is the one who's behind all false teaching, but he will be crushed. He won't win. God will defeat him. And I love that in verse 20 because it doesn't seem to work when you first read it. The God of peace will crush Satan. It doesn't sound a very peaceful thing to do to you and me, does it? Crushing people. Until you think about it, destroying evil is exactly the way to get peace. Well, there it is, the book of Romans. 
How do we sum it up? Well, we don't need to because Paul does that for us in verses 25 to 27. And if you want to do a little bit more study, look at how the first part of chapter one and these last verses of the letter say the same things. They are the bookends. They tell us what the letter's all about. And verses 25 to 27, what's it about? It's about how we can be established by the gospel. How we're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. How God is bringing together a global community and obedience to him. It's about taking this momentous news to all nations. Can I sum it up in a sentence? I don't know, I'm going to try. It's about winning the whole world for Jesus Christ forever to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the uh, the glorious gospel, uh, the gospel that uh, so many of us, hundreds of us here know and love, the gospel that has completely transformed our lives, uh, the gospel that is your power, our Lord and God. Our power to save men and women. Power beyond that to unite Jew and Gentile. uh, People who'd never be seen dead together. United under one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is that same gospel that as it grabs our hearts makes us want to work hard for you that others may know it. And so we ask you please to be people who guard the gospel, who watch out for the ones who would come in to try and wreck your church by changing the gospel. And as we thank you for this wonderful book of the book of Romans, we thank you that you've given us everything we need in that book to know what that true gospel is. And so we ask you to make us work hard to know it and so to be able to guard it. In Jesus' name, amen.